0: Have you guys ever felt like an outsider before? Felt excluded, felt outside the loop, felt like you don't belong, you don't fit in, and everybody around you can tell that. Maybe a friend group at school that you wish you were a part of that you're on the outside of, or maybe sometimes in your own family you can feel that way, or I hope not, but unfortunately it can happen even in the church. You can walk into the church and you can feel like, I I feel like I'm an, an outsider, not so much with the church or with your family, but certainly when it comes to the world, that's how God wants us to feel. He wants us to have that feeling that when we look at the world around us, concludes, man, I I don't belong here. I feel like an outsider. Hebrews 13 verses 9 through 16 is where we're going to be studying tonight. And it's going to lay out for us why that is and what that should look like. You may already draw some conclusions as to why that is. Thinking back to Peter, calls us strangers and aliens, that we should live in this world as exiles, that we don't fit in, that this world is not our home. And so we are going to live differently. And yeah, that's, that's part of it. But the writer of Hebrews goes a little bit further even. As you look at your Bibles in Hebrews chapter 13, you may see that up at the top of chapter 13, there's a a title that the editors of the ESV put in there, and that is Sacrifice is Pleasing to God. Sacrifice is Pleasing to God, and it's helpful now as we get to verses 9 through 16, because the author is going back to the concept of the temple again. He's going back to the concept of the sacrificial system, something that we left off back in chapter 10 and haven't really been dealing with all that much since then. But he's going to return to it as he's concluding his letter, as he's rehearsing some of the things that he's been talking about. He's coming back to this idea of sacrifice. And so we pick up in verse 9, it says, Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who are devoted to them. We have an altar from which... Those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gates in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, that is through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's the, the header there, sacrifices pleasing to God. But he opens up, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Led away, it's a compound word there in the Greek that means to be, uh, to, to be carried away from a place. It's the, the idea of being carried and then from. And so he's saying, don't let these false teachers carry you away from Jesus. Don't let them lead you away so that you are, are separated from the gospel, separated from the Lord by diverse and strange teachings. He's been talking a lot about Judaism in the book. He's been talking a lot about the Old Testament Jewish sacrificial system. And now he's been contrasting that with the great high priest that we have in Jesus. And it's not that Judaism was diverse and strange, so it seems like this was more of, of a, another false teaching that had crept into the church there that he was writing to, and it was a teaching that had to do, it appears, with food laws. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened, he says, by grace, and not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. It's good for the heart to be strengthened. It's a word that can mean confirmed, established, that you are firm in place, that you are immovable, That you are secure. And he's saying, what makes us secure as Christians is grace. Is grace, not these food laws, which there's a sect of people trying to get you to follow after. These dietary restrictions, these strange and diverse teachings. He's saying, don't be led astray by that. Don't be led away by that. Don't be carried away from the gospel by false teaching. Remember that you are secure in Christ by grace and not by foods or any other litany of legalistic things that we might want to substitute for foods in that regard. Our author reminds his readers that their standing before the Lord had little to do with their actions and everything to do with God's actions. They weren't to keep themselves. In fact, they weren't able to keep themselves in the love of Christ through their own efforts, and certainly not through eating some things and not eating other things. Instead, they needed to trust in the power of God to keep them and preserve them, the grace of God to keep them and preserve them. In Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes this. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You've heard the gospel made plain, is what he's saying. Let me ask you this, Paul says. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer to that question is what? By hearing with faith, yes? That we receive the spirit in response to our faith that we place in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's that interchange. That's that interaction there. It's not by works, and that's his point. And then he says this in verse three. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit... Are you now being perfected by the flesh? The writer of Hebrews is saying some of the the same things here to the the church that he's writing to. He's saying, what what are you doing messing around with these strange and diverse teachings about foods that you should eat or foods that you shouldn't eat as though that's going to have anything to do with your standing before the Lord? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by your works? Are you now trusting in your works to make you holy and acceptable to God? Because, y'all, that's not your job. That's what God has done through Christ. And even the faith that we have, we don't preserve our own faith, do we? Peter makes that clear in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's just get what the the action is is going on here and who is doing the action. Did we cause ourselves to be born again? Is that what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1? In fact, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and just flip over there. Put your eyes on the text. 1 Peter chapter 1. Got it on my screen, but I'll turn there too just to, to participate with you guys. If you're in Hebrews, it's, it's to the right, like a book or two. First Peter chapter 1, Peter's talking about the, the blessedness of our salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, right? So who are we talking about? Whose great mercy? We can interact, y'all. It's been a couple weeks, but come on now. God's great mercy. According to God's great mercy... He, who's the he again? God. God caused us to be born again. So how was I saved? Did I do anything for that? Who saved me? God did. God caused me to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, Kept in heaven for you. Notice verse five here. Pay attention. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? Who by whose power are being guarded? Your power? Are you keeping yourself saved right here tonight? Are you maintaining your faith where you sit tonight? Is it on you that tomorrow morning you're gonna wake up still following Jesus? Is that on you? What does Peter say? No, you're being guarded by whose power? God's power through what? Through faith. So if you're here tonight and you're going, man, I've always worried that all of a sudden I'm gonna wake up and not believe in Jesus anymore. Peter's telling you, if you are in Christ, that's not gonna happen because your faith is being guarded by God's power, that God is using your faith to guard you and preserve you for this salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so Christian, are you so foolish as to think having begun by the spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Don't be, as our writer in Hebrew says, don't be carried away by these false and strange teachings that are leading you to think that you can contribute something to this whole process of you being secure in your relationship with Jesus. In fact, he takes a little pot shot at them towards the end when he says this. He says, how have those food laws worked out for those so devoted to them? The answer is, well, not well. They're not doing a whole lot for them. Instead, what does he say? Look at verse 10. Rather than that, remember, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Okay, what are we talking about? Again, Hebrews, Old Testament imagery, tent being tabernacle, okay? All right, the the, the temple, the tabernacle where the the priests would serve. And so he's contrasting the, the security that we have in Christ with this Old Testament reality. And he's saying, look, those that serve the tent that might be looking at you going, why don't you eat with clean hands? Why don't you eat this food and not this food? Why don't you practice the dietary restrictions and the laws? The Judaizers, right? He's he's looking at them going, hey, you know what? The altar that we have, they have no right to fellowship at that altar. They have no right to participate in that altar. What's that altar? There's differing views on that, but I'm going to suggest to you, and I think this is what he's driving at, I think the altar here is ultimately the cross. I think it's the cross. Because what happened at the altar in the temple? What was brought to the altar and put on the altar? Sacrifices, right? And specifically in the context of Hebrews 13, he's going to be talking about sin offerings here. He has in mind in view the day of atonement, when the the goat was offered as the sin offering, the one goat was was killed as the sin offering and the red heifer was also killed, right? And so these were offered on the altar for the atonement of the people. And he's making this allusion to that, saying those that serve at that altar, those that serve the tent, those that wanna lay these legalistic restrictions upon you about food laws and uh, seasons and feasts and everything else, they have no right to participate in the altar that we No, and that we have. And that altar is another altar where another sacrifice was made, another atoning sacrifice was made, the fulfillment of the day of atonement, the ultimate atoning sacrifice, which is the cross, where Jesus was offered, not the blood of bulls and goats, but where Jesus was offered for us so that we would be forgiven, so that our sins would be wiped clean once and for all. And the reference there to the Priests have no right to eat at this altar. When the sin offering was made in the temple, the priest would be able to participate in the leftover parts of the sin offering. They would take some of that food, some of that leftover meat, and then that would become their sustenance. That would become their food. And he's saying, hey, those that want to cause you to trust in works, they can't eat at the altar that we have, which is the cross and Jesus. Why? Why? Why can't they participate? Why can't they fellowship in the the fellowship that we have and to know the altar that we know? And the answer is because they're trusting in their works and they're not trusting in Jesus. They're trying to be perfected in the flesh and not trusting that God is guarding them by power through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. They're guilty of falling prey to what Paul talks about in Romans 3.20. When Paul says in, again, Romans 3.20, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. By works of the law, by observing ritual sacrifices and, and adhering to eat this, don't eat this kind of laws, no one will be justified in God's sight. Why? Well, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Built in there is, is the reality, right? That the, if you want to be justified by the law, guess what you have to do? You have to keep the whole thing, all of it, perfectly, never sinning, never making a mistake, never disobeying a single part of the law. And we know just a couple verses later in Romans chapter 3, Paul's going to say, ain't nobody done that. We all have sinned in falling short of the glory of God. And that's why no human being can be justified before God by trying to keep the law, by eating this and not eating this, and by trusting in this work and this work and this work and bringing all of our works to the Lord and saying, okay, here they all are. Am I good now, God? And the answer is always going to be no, if that's what we're doing. And the idea is worded in such a way from our author in Hebrews that those that fell prey to this teaching would no longer have any share in Christ. Christ. They would be disqualified. Paul says this in Galatians 5 4. Galatians 5 4. He says, You are severed from Christ. Let those words sit. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Again, he, this is the same group that he wrote to and said, are, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Paul says, if that's you, then you never understood the gospel for, in the first place. And guess what? You, you are disqualified from it. You are severed from, from Christ. You fall away from grace because you're trusting in yourself and not trusting in Jesus. And y'all, that is the one thing, the preeminent thing that we cannot do is trust our righteousness and not Christ's righteousness. And Christians, we need to guard against that as well. Point number one tonight is this. Fear anything that lessens Christ's work. Fear anything that lessens Christ's work. some 700 years or so before the cross, Isaiah the prophet wrote this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he is born carried our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. We thought he was smitten by God, cursed and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment, the physical retributive punishment that that brought us... Peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Matthew chapter 27. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled this man to carry the cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, They divided his garments among them by casting lots, and they sat down together and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put a charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers, two criminals, worthy of capital punishment for their crimes, were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others and he can't even save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. Then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers, the criminals, worthy of capital punishment who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. I want us to remember what Christ has done for us. And I want us to frame this point that way because We can't fall prey to thinking that we have to help Jesus with this atoning sacrifice. We we can't fall prey to the mindset that says what Jesus did is not enough for me. I need to supplement it in order for God to accept me. And so sometimes our doubts about our salvation can be innocent enough and our doubts about our salvation can be areas where we just need patience and we need help. But y'all, sometimes our doubts about our salvation are pride that are masked by doubt because we're uncomfortable with the reality, the glorious reality that the cross is enough that we, we don't need to help Jesus And when we try to help him, what we're essentially saying is uh, all the suffering that you went through, that the Lord was pleased to crush you, Jesus, that the Lord was pleased to lay all of my sin upon you, that you were crucified between these two criminals and people made fun of you and mocked you and you experienced the suffering and the pain and the hurt and the the suffocation and, and then beyond that, the spiritual weight of the wrath of God being poured out on you. Thanks, Jesus, but it's not enough for my sin. How dare we? You have not sinned more than the blood of Christ can cover. No one has. And he doesn't need your help to make you acceptable to God. And that's what was going on here in Hebrews 13. These people were coming going, hey, you really want to be acceptable to God? Hey, here's these food laws. Make sure that you eat this and don't eat this. We cannot do that. We have got to make sure that we're guarding against that. And you're going, sitting out there going, well, food laws, I'm I'm good with that. I'm good with that. That, that. Okay, well, let's talk about some other things, maybe some legalistic security blankets that you have from time to time. How about DBR? You ever do the DBR with your motivation being, well, maybe God will be happy with me now that I've done my DBR enough? Or a discipleship relationship that you have with a particular leader or a pastor. That you have a, a confidence in your standing with God because of somebody that you know or somebody that you have a, a relationship with. Or you just have a specific sin that you don't engage with. And you feel like, well, I, I'm, I'm better off than this person because I, I, I don't do that sin. Or maybe it's Baptism. You say, well, well, I'm baptized, so I'm good. I'm baptized, so therefore God accepts me. No. Or maybe it's praying a prayer at some point or walking an aisle or raising a hand or, or every, uh, what is it, head bowed and eye closed, not eyes bowed and head closed. And, and, you know, pray this prayer. Jesus, I need you to save me. And you did that, and that's what you point back to and go, I'm good because I did this. If you go back and say, I'm good because I did anything, you totally missed the boat. Because the only reason we're good with God is because of what Christ has done for us. And we can be tempted to look at our works as a sign that we're okay with God. We want to bring our merit. We want to have some skin in the game. Because then we feel like we've got some control in this matter. Well, guess what? You don't. You don't have any skin in the game. You don't have any merit. And when you do, you know what the Bible calls that? He calls it polluted garments in Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. In all our, notice Isaiah says, righteous deeds, all of our good works, when we trust in those for our standing before God, they are polluted garments. We all fade away like a leaf in our iniquities like the wind take us away. That's why the author has been repeatedly saying in Hebrews, hold fast to your confession of the hope of the gospel. Cling to that. That is your standing. That is what matters. Hold fast to that, because that's the only thing that can transform you. Isaiah chapter one, come now, let us reason together, says the prophet, Isaiah 1:18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They, though they are red like crimson, they shall become white like wool. Y'all, you and I can't do that. We can't cleanse our sins. That's a work that only Christ can do. And so fear anything that lessens Christ's work. What lessens Christ's work? It's anything that you're bringing to God going, God, are you okay with me now that I've done this? Y'all, our obedience is not offered to God for our standing with him. Our obedience is offered to God as an expression of our love for him. Legalism, though, and hear this as well, though. Legalism is not the same thing as sanctification, okay? Sanctification is a good thing. Legalism is a bad thing because legalism says this about our works. Legalism looks at our works as a source of righteousness. That's what we've been talking about. God, am I righteous now because I've done these things? God says, no, you're righteous because Christ has done everything. Legalism leads us to boast in ourselves and not in Jesus. Legalism is that, that pride that says, well, look how righteous I am because I've done all of these things. Instead of saying, I'm righteous because of what Christ has done. Legalism lessens the impact of the cross because it's like we want Jesus, but then we're going to move the cross out, out of the front and center place before the throne of God and we're going to bring our works and put them next to the cross and say, okay, here's the cross and my works, God. Am I good now with you? And the other reason why legalism and sanctification are different is legalism has eternal ramifications. Because if we fall prey to the lie that we can contribute to our salvation, if we fall prey to the lie that our works have something to do with our righteous standing before the Lord, then we are going to hear one day from the Lord, depart from me, I never knew you. Go read Matthew 7. On that day there will be many who say to me, Lord, Lord. And what do they appeal to? Works. Didn't we? Didn't we do this, Lord? Didn't we do this? 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 this? Aren't we good now? Look at everything that I did. But Jesus is going to say, depart from me because I never knew you. I never knew you. We need to fear anything that lessens the impact of the cross, that lessens Christ's work for us. He goes on in verse 11, then after talking about the altar, the cross, and he says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. We're talking about the Day of Atonement. How do you know you're talking about the Day of Atonement? Because when is the only time the high priest was allowed to bring the sacrifices into the holy place in the temple? On the Day of Atonement. Okay? So we're talking about the day of atonement and he's saying the high priest would take the blood of in the bodies of those animals and he would offer them inside the the holy place and then he had to take it all away from the temple. Right. And he had to go and take it and he had to burn it where outside the camp. Why? Because that that offering that that food could not be eaten by the priest because it had had atoned for the sins of all of Israel. And so because that animal metaphorically was bearing the weight of the sins of the people, the priest could then not participate in fellowship by eating that animal. So that animal was taken outside the camp and it was burned outside the camp in a place that became unclean ceremonially. And the priests who would, whose job it was to carry those animals outside the camp and to burn those animals outside the camp, they had to go through a cleansing ritual before they were allowed to come back in and be allowed to serve in the temple again because they had become defiled with that sin offering that was, had to be carried outside the camp to therefore not defile Israel and, and be dealt with out there. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered. Where? Outside the gate. Outside the gate, outside the camp. It's the same concept. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. See, Jesus was was doing something different the, the, the animal, the atoning sacrifice was brought out and it was left outside the camp. And so Jesus, to be the ultimate atoning sacrifice, was crucified and offered for us outside the camp. Outside the gate and in this grand twist of irony, the very people that are inside, that are at the, the, the temple altar, they don't get to benefit from the sacrifice that's made in the place that was ceremonially unclean for them. The place that they looked at with disdain and thought, well, that's where the refuse animals are burned. That place is unclean. Jesus went there, and that's where he was sacrificed for our sins. So what does our author say in verse 13? Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. Let's go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Let's go identify with Jesus. Let's break with Judaism and go to Jesus outside the gate. Let's leave behind our legalistic security blankets, y'all, and go to Jesus outside the gate. Let's die to self and self glory and self promotion and self righteousness and go to Jesus outside the gate. Let's die to this world and go to Jesus outside the gate. Because the reality is to stay inside the camp is to forfeit and exclude oneself from the blessings of Christ's offering. Because the altar that matters is the cross. And if you're going to stay inside the camp and trust in your own works and trust in legalism, which is what the camp is all about, if you're going to stay there and you're going to trust in your righteousness, then you don't have any part in the righteousness of Jesus. But man, if you want the righteousness of Jesus, then we need to go outside the camp. We need to go to Jesus. Because he says in verse 14, for here, we don't have any lasting city here. There's no hope and future for us here. There's no point in being so content here. No, let's go to Jesus outside the camp. Let's bear his reproach. In other words, even if we're going to suffer with him outside the camp, which we are going to suffer with him outside the camp. Even if we're going to be out there and the world's going to look at us and say, you guys are defiled, you're unclean, you're out of bounds. What does it matter to us? We have no lasting city here. We seek a better city. We seek the city that is to come. This harkens back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10 and verse 16. Hebrews eleven ten 10 says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's the city that is to come. That's the one that, that I want. Give me the one that God is designing. Hebrews eleven sixteen. 16, but as it is, they desire a better, not city, but country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a, here it is, city. You guys want to be part of the city of God? You guys want to be part of the the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem? You want to have that? You want to know what that is? Then we got to go to Jesus outside the camp and bear his reproach. And if you think we won't bear his approach, then you haven't been paying much attention to what's been going on recently in the news. But before we get there, point number two tonight is this. Choose Jesus with kingdom eyes. Fear anything that lessens the impact of the cross and make sure that daily you are choosing Jesus with kingdom eyes. Looking for that city that is to come. Looking for not the city that's here, but the city that's to come. If you've ever gotten a, an email from Pastor Lucas, he always signs them, kingdom eyes. Lucas Pace, staff pastor, Compass Bible Church, Elisa Viejo. He always signs them "Kingdom Eyes," and I've never known anyone else that signed their emails that way. But I, I love that concept. I love that phrase. So I'm just letting you know it's not mine. It's PL's. In other words, it's it's develop this focus on the city that is to come, so that everything else dims in comparison. And be prepared to bear the reproach of Christ, which again we will. In fact, with all of this hubbub with the Supreme Court and the uh, abortion Roe v. Wade law being overturned, Lord willing, we pray that it will. There was a a pro-life facility up in Wisconsin that was recently attacked. It was firebombed, according to the article. And the people who did it then called and left voicemails on the answering machine of this ministry saying, burn little Jesus freaks. in Wisconsin it's much more popular today also in our world think about it if you were at the hot topic most recently much more popular in this world to talk about your deconversion than your conversion If you want the applause of the world, turn on your cell phone camera and record a video talking about your wisdom and your vast knowledge of everything in the universe that's led you to conclude that you should deconvert from from the abusive, and make sure you throw the word abusive in there because that's always a hot buzzword that'll get you a lot of likes on Instagram and watches on YouTube, the abusive church that is so oppressive and heavy-handed. Do that and the world will applaud you and Christ will reject you. You can have your applause in the world. See, we have to be willing to bear the reproach of Christ. We have to be willing to let the world hate us, mock us, persecute us. Matthew 27, we read it earlier. They were deriding him. They were mocking him. Trying to humiliate him as much as they possibly could. As they killed him and we want to say wait a minute what i don't know if i want to follow jesus if it's going to mean that i've got to suffer no but it's worth it if we have these kingdom eyes paul had them when he said this light momentary affliction is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison light momentary affliction So I guess the question I have for you, are you willing to go outside the camp to Jesus and bear his reproach and do so with these kingdom eyes? that's going to let you not only do that when it's easy, but do that when it gets hard. Yo, your generation is so crucial for the the future of the church. The church isn't going to go anywhere. Let me rephrase that. The church in America. Because Jesus promised Peter... I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. So let's not be so proud as to think that somehow the next generation of American church leaders is somehow going to tank God's plan for the church. It's not. The church is not going to go anywhere. But the church in America could be severely crippled if we don't start to get our act together. And the heat's going to get turned up. We're already encountering encountering more persecution and opposition in the church than I have ever encountered or that my parents' generation encountered. And it's not going to lessen all of a sudden, no matter what happens with midterms. So we need to be ready to endure. And the way that we're going to be ready to endure is to be kingdom focused. Jesus focused, actually, Hebrews chapter 12. We know that passage, right? 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. Notice that. Let us run with endurance. Why do we need endurance? Because the race is not easy. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us doing what? Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, will you go to Jesus outside the camp? That's why we have passages like Revelation 21, where it talks about there's no more sorrow, there's no more sickness, there's no more death, there's no more tears, there's no more sin. Why do we have those passages in the Bible? To cause us to long for that reality, to want to be there to want to be with Jesus. It's, it's like God's in his, his grace and his mercy. He's holding this out to us going, man, don't you want this? And every time I hear somebody preach on that passage or preach on heaven, I'm like, yes, I want that. I want to be there. I want to know that that's where I'm going. And you can because in Christ, that's where you are going. But to be in Christ, we got to go to Christ outside the camp and be willing to bear the reproach That he himself has born maybe right now you're in a valley and you need to refocus on the city that is to come You've been struggling you've been battling Sadness depression hopelessness despair If you're a christian, let me encourage you focus on the city that is to come remind yourself about the city that is to come Remind yourself that if you feel like man, I feel like an outsider in this world. That's good That's where god wants you to feel he wants you to be outside the camp Or maybe you've been battling temptation to give in to the pleasures of this temporal city. You need to refocus on the the coming city and realize that that's going to be so much better than this city. Maybe you're afraid of what this temporal city might look like tomorrow, battling anxiety about the future tomorrow. And you need to refocus on the city that is to come. I don't know what the city is going to look like tomorrow. I know what it's going to look like when Jesus comes back. We have that. So every day you wake up, it's your decision. Are you going to go outside the camp to bear the reproach of Christ or not? It's going to be a battle because it's always going to be easier to stay inside the camp. It's always going to be easier to try to fit in. It's going to be more popular to be inside the camp, safer to be inside the camp, at least now. Now but not in the long run. And our kingdom eyes will remind us of that. Well, what does it look like to go outside the camp? What are we doing outside the camp? That sounds great, and that's like a cool phrase and statement, but what what does that mean? Well, thankfully, the writer tells us in verse 15, through him then, if we're going to go to Jesus outside the camp, through him, through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. And this is still building on the altar imagery. Because remember, we're talking about the altar outside the camp. What is the altar outside the camp? It's the cross. So as we go to Christ, as we go to the cross, what are we doing? We are offering up our own sacrifices. What are those sacrifices? A sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. If you were with us this morning or last night, we talked a lot about this. This concept that worship looks like something. Worship shows up. Worship manifests itself. Not in singing songs alone, not in hearing a sermon alone, but it's a lifestyle. It's, it's godliness, right? And so that's what he means when he says, uh, we need to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, what I'm talking about is the fruit, not the lips of, not the words of, but the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. So in other words, your godliness Is what we are presenting what we are offering what we are bringing to the lord Your life is what you are bringing to the lord In totality every single part of your life. That is what you are bringing to god This is what you are offering to jesus when we go outside the camp What does it mean to go outside the camp to go to the cross is to die to ourselves and our agenda and our goals in our world And to pick up the cross of christ and live for his agenda and his goals And his glory It's to go and it's to surrender everything we are and to give it all to Christ. The gospel is about trusting Jesus as both our Lord and our Savior. And when we say that, that, to trust him as our Lord, we're talking about his lordship. We're talking about his sovereign rule over our lives. We're talking about saying, when we go to Christ, we are giving him everything. We are surrendering it all, saying, you can have all of me, Jesus, Take everything I am and be Lord over it all. That's the sacrifice of praise. That's what we're doing outside the camp. Point number three tonight, it's this. Worship Jesus in full devotion. Worship Jesus in full devotion. Yo, this is a process. This is not instantaneous. That's why sanctification is progressive. Sanctification, being made more like Jesus, that's why it's a progress, that's why it's a process that doesn't happen overnight, but Lord willing, over the course of our lives, if the Lord gives you another 60 years, if he's kind, that as those years pass by, you will look more and more and more like Jesus as each of those years tick away. That is what it is for the Lordship of Jesus to be manifest in your life. That is what it is for you daily to decide to go outside the cross, outside the camp, rather, to the cross and to say, I'm yours, Jesus. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Here's the thing about a living sacrifice you know what a living sacrifice is going to want to do? It's going to want to get down off the altar. And so that's why daily you and I need to go out to the cross. You and I need to go out and we need to daily make sure that we are surrendering ourselves to Christ. Am I saying get saved every single day? No, I'm not saying get saved every single day. I'm saying when you are saved, it's a daily reminder that you are surrendering yourself today to the lordship of Jesus every single day. That is what it looks like for us to be progressively sanctified. That's what it looked like for Paul to say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's what it looked like for Paul to say, hey, you know what? Whether I'm at home or away, I'm gonna make it my aim to please Jesus. The fruit of lips of praise. He defines it even further in verse 16. Look there. He says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In other words, live out the gospel. Do good and share what you have. We could rephrase that categorically here as love God and love others. Does that sound familiar? Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You know, y'all, metabolism is a great thing when you have it. And every time I go out and play golf with Pastor John, I just think to myself, someday that's going to slow down. His metabolism is going to slow down, and he's not going to hit the ball 350 yards off the tee. It hasn't yet, but someday it will. Now, metabolism is a good thing if, if you have it, but over time, it begins to slow down. And all of a sudden, you notice that your pants fit a little bit tighter, and your shir- shirts seem to have shrunk the last time that you put them through the laundry, even though you didn't do anything different. Solution to this is what? Well, you begin to discipline yourself with consistent diet and exercise in, in most cases. And as long as you stay consistent in that, again, in most cases, your, your body will respond. But let up, take a couple of weeks off, and guess what? Those pants start shrinking again. Y'all, our spiritual metabolism has to be kept up as well. We live in a world that does not foster a healthy spiritual life. We live in a world of spiritual junk food and Netflix binges. And if we we don't do the hard work to go outside the camp every day and surrender ourselves to Christ, we're not going to be doing well, spiritually speaking. Have you guys ever heard the term pariah? Pariah pariah, P-A-R-I-A-H. It's someone who's an outcast, somebody who is of despised character in a state. A pariah is somebody who's been rejected by society. It's meant to be an undesirable title. You're not meant to want to be a pariah. But can I suggest as Christians that it might be a welcome moniker for us? If the world's system looks at us and says, you don't fit, you're an outsider, rather than grieve that, I think we should wear that as a badge of honor because Jesus wants us to be an outsider. He's called us to go to him outside the camp, to bear the reproach that he has borne. And in exchange, he's offered us the city that is to come. Where we as outsiders will suddenly become the insiders. It's a small price to pay when you think about it. Even if we lose everything. in at the end of the day, all I have is Christ. Is that enough? Is that enough? I think so. go outside the camp, I'll leave everything else behind if I can have Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your grace, your mercy towards us. We thank you for the fulfillment of the righteous requirements of the law by Jesus on our behalf so that we can be forgiven, so that we don't have to bring anything else, so that we don't still need to go and offer sacrifices, so that we don't need to abide by food laws. God, we're grateful for the sufficiency of the death of Jesus. God, I pray that you would guard us, guard our hearts from being lured away into wanting to trust in our own righteousness. Protect us from being carried away from the sufficiency of Christ to the idea that we can somehow bring something To the table. God, I I pray that you would give us a steely and firm resolve that we would uh, wake up every single day ready to go outside the camp again to Christ, ready to live in this world as an outsider. Because it's far better, even if we should suffer here, even if we should be mocked and ridiculed here, even if we should die here. To bear the reproach of Christ in exchange for the city that is to come is far better than anything this world has to offer us. And so it's truth that we would give it all to say, just give me Jesus. Because if we say, all I have is Christ, that's enough for us. We pray in Jesus' name,
1: amen. Amen, let's all stand together. As we close out our time praising and honoring Christ, I once was lost in. Darkest night you thought I knew the way the same sin- May that be true of us. We are dismissed to small groups.